You're listening to A Shot in the Arm, a podcast brought to you by Newsdoc Media and Hunavat Global. I'm your host, Ben Plumley. This podcast aims to explore complex global health and human rights issues everywhere from the United States to Soweto and everywhere in between. We'll hear from experts from all walks of life and hear the challenges and opportunities they feel we face. And I'll be providing my own commentary and narrative. I've spent the last 30 years fighting for health and human rights, working with community organizations, the UN, business and running non-profits. Suffice it to say, I have strong views on what works and what doesn't work. I'm excited and worried about our future. But above all, I hope you'll share my passion to learn. On today's episode, we've got two very special guests. I'm going to be chatting with Gloria Lockett, the founding executive director of the California Prostitutes Education Project and longtime AIDS activist. And later, we'll hear my interview with Venezuelan human rights lawyer Marianne Torres on the state of AIDS in Venezuela. So let's get right into it. Gloria Lockett is an internationally respected figure and has run HIV awareness, testing, prevention and treatment programs for people of colour in California's Bay Area since the early 1980s. Gloria, welcome to A Shot in the Arm. Hi, Ben. Gloria, you are a titan, if I may say, of health and human rights. And for the last 34 years, years, you've been the executive director of CalPEP. What is that and what have you done? CalPEP is California Prostitutes Education Project. And uh, CalPEP basically started working with prostitutes in San Francisco and soon after the Bay Area, working with sex workers that were high-risk sex workers on the streets, on the streets of San Francisco and the streets of Oakland, but focusing on high-risk. Now, when you say high-risk and working with, what does that mean? And why would they listen to you? So the reason why they listen to me, because I am an ex, I have been there. I come from the place where I knew sex workers use condoms because I and the stable that I was in, all of us used condoms. Um, We would buy, you know, 12 dozen at a time. And so we were definitely using condoms. And I knew as soon as I found out that they were scapegoating white gay men for HIV and AIDS, the next group of people that they would scapegoat would be sex workers. And in fact, that's how it was. So I, along with Margot St. James, Priscilla Alexander, a bunch of other women, had a conference in Mills Valley. Um, Sorry, not Mills Valley, Sausalitos, at her house, uh, Margot St. James' house. And it was... uh, When was that? Um, gosh, that was in the early 80s, probably 82, 83. Wow. Yes. And it was a international horrors conference from all over, uh, all over the world. And out of that conference came California Prostitutes Education Project. So a group of us started doing just support groups for sex workers because nobody knew what HIV and AIDS was. And we wanted to make sure that they knew that they were at risk. But early on, we were kind of, kind of bright, if you will, 
for knowing that if they use condoms, they could protect themselves. It was uh, not something that we were going to say, get them holes off them corners and don't work at all because people, lots of people did not have a choice. Lots of the women that we work with were women that were poor and the reason why they went into sex work because they knew they had a body, a mind, and they could make money off of their bodies. But we wanted to make sure that they were healthy and knew how to keep themselves healthy. So 82, that's really right at the start. Right at the start. And, you know, in our sort of historical textbooks or our, our oral traditions, if you like, we don't really think of prostitutes being at the forefront of the AIDS response. We think of angry young white guys in New York and San Francisco. But you were there. You were there right from the start. As you look back now, 34 years later, you're, you're an executive director of one of the lead service organizations. That is to say, an organization that actually provides direct services to people. Probably the one of the biggest in the United States. Did you think you'd ever get here? Do you think do you think you would have been doing this back in eighty two? Absolutely not. No. We we were more advocacy, if you will. We wanted to make sure that there was a voice and we wanted to make sure that people knew that because you were a sex worker did not mean that you didn't care about your body or your health. And we knew from the beginning that sex workers had no health insurance, you know, they had. So in order for them to be healthy, they have to take care of themselves in order for me and the rest of the women that I work with and we started off being street prostitutes, if you will, working on the streets. But we knew that we had to take care of ourselves. And so when I heard it was health and when I knew that, you know, me and a bunch of other people had used condoms uh, all of our working life, the all the times that I, I worked as a sex worker, which was uh, 20 plus years, and uh, I had never had any kind of venereal disease. And I can tell you a quick story, if you will. Yeah. So I was with a guy who was a diabetic. And every time that somebody had something, he would have some, he would get clap, if you will, uh, gonorrhea. And so every time that he said he had it, I just went to the clinic and said, give me a shot because, you know, I've had sex with somebody and I know they had it. And every time I went to the clinic and came back, they were like, no, you don't have it. You know, uh, we're going to stop giving you the shot and we're going to test you for it. So I had never had um, a, um, anything, any kind of uh, um, gonorrhea, any kind of STDs. And that's because I use condoms all the time. And even though people didn't want to call HIV a STD, from the beginning, I knew it was STDs. Mm. I, I knew. And that's how my people, the people that I dealt with, understood. So you were using you were using condoms before we knew about HIV. This absolutely. was just good practice. It was using condoms because I didn't want gonorrhea. I didn't want syphilis. I didn't want any of those things, even though they were curable. So it was just, it came automatic. And me and a bunch of other people, like I said, you know, we had no health care. So in order to take care of yourself, you have to use condoms. And uh, so... So I'm about, I guess, seven years behind you. Mm -hmm. 1982, I, I left my posh university, got my degree, went to London, 
and immediately started working actually for a faith-based organization, an Anglican organization, but they don't believe in anything, so that, that, that's okay. Um, and, and what I did was to help uh, local Im um, immigrants, particularly from East Africa, from Uganda, from the Civil War there, enable them to access um, the health benefits, the social mm -hmm. benefits. And they mm -hmm. were mostly women coming with their kids and their, their husbands were gone, were dead, what have you. Mm -hmm. And um, I can remember a couple of them, uh, a couple of the mums getting very ill, mm -hmm. the kids getting very ill. And these were the same sort of illnesses that the gay boys were getting. Mm -hmm. And it was like the worst aha moment to realise, fuck, you know, these people are getting this is HIV, this is the same thing. They're saying this is going to be a heterosexual, mm -hmm. but it's already happened. Mm -hmm. uh, we're probably a tiny bit different in age, not much, but <laughs> I, 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 it just overwhelmed me. But I think for both of us, there's been a point where experiencing this wasn't enough. Something changed, something happened to us that moved us from okay, this is what's going around. This is what we're facing to. Damn it, I'm not going to accept this. I'm not going to accept that change. What was that moment for you? I think the moment for me was I started working um, as an outreach worker for San Francisco General. And San Francisco General Ward 84, they got the first test where you test people to see if they had HIV. And um, they had me go out with them because it was a research study. The research study was to see if women, straight women, were as high risk as sex workers. And it was a five-year grant that was paid for by the Centers of Disease Control. And um, so we were testing people, and a couple of people came and said, I'm positive. That's good, ain't it? And I was like, oh, my goodness. And what I realized is they weren't getting educated. They were just getting the test. That was not good enough for people to think positive was good. To me, they really need some education, not just to be research, research subject. subject. So I think that was the turning point. That's when I realized that Cal Pep really had to do something. That's where the name really stuck to me because they really needed to be educated on what it was. And oftentimes what they were thinking, and unfortunately, some still think, oh, well, I'm not having sex with gay men. So if I'm not having sex with gay men, I'm, I'm okay. And that's not okay. So the education had to happen. And it, the, the same here with, you know, oh, I only have sex with my partner or right. only have unprotected sex with my right. partner. I right. always use condoms with everybody else like you. Yeah. And the other thing was we started doing work um, in the jails, going to uh, the San Francisco County Jail, and we would go in and we would talk to the women about HIV and, and um, AIDS. And they would say things like, my husband or my boyfriend, he at home, and, and I only have sex with him. And it's like, uh, excuse me, but where is he? And how do you know that he's at home? And okay, take this quarter. At that time, it cost a quarter to make a phone call. Call him. I want to talk to him. And, um, and then some of them would actually say, I don't like using condoms. It don't feel good. But the thing that really struck me too, as an African-American woman, I knew that it was typical that lots of people in my hood had multiple sex partners. And to me, multiple sex partners 
was high risk. And so it wasn't just the sex workers or the gay men. It was people in my community, and I needed to be able to tell them straight out, you know, no, you are at risk too. It's not just, you know, the gay white men that are walking down the street feeling each other's ass. It's not just them. If you're having multiple sex partners, you're having, or if your husband, boyfriend is having multiple sex partners, then you're having sex with all of those people. And so... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and certainly I remember mm-hmm. is that back in the day it was telephone lines mm-hmm. uh, or it could be going out to clubs very late at night. These days, mm-hmm. of course, it's it's these hookup applications. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's where you think, oh, that stuff doesn't affect me. That's not me. But in fact, um, I think many of our communities are communities where it's human behavior to right. have sexual partners. Right, right. I... I mean, my ex, the the man that I was with for 10 years had 10 women. I actually, I was with him for about 20 years. And for 10 years out of that, he had like 10 women straight. And he wasn't using condoms with any of those women. So, you know, we had to start using condoms with him because we realized, Hey, this is more dangerous than me getting syphilis or gonorrhea. You can't get, you know, um, syphilis and gonorrhea. They at least had penicillin. You can get a shot or medicine and you would be okay. But AIDS was like, at that time was a death sentence. They had no medicines. They had anything, didn't have anything. So it was, it, it, it was a point where I knew that if I understood that you have to take care of yourself and that if you took care of yourself, you could do what you wanted to, but you have to take care of yourself. You have to be able to not do this and not do that. Like I, at that time, IV drug use was, you know, people were sharing needles and that's how most people were getting AIDS is by sharing needles. So we work with needle exchange. We made sure that people understood, you know, exchange your needles, don't share your needles. And, um, use clean needles each time and understand that that's how you're getting HIV and AIDS. It's not behind the drug, it's behind the dirty needles. Yeah. And and here we are in 2019, a lot of changes. We've got the treatment cocktails that have, for those people who can actually get hold of them, have changed their lives. Right. One of the things you and I have been noodling around, thinking about over these last few years, is how to rebuild the HIV prevention response taking what works, jettisoning what really hasn't worked, and and thinking about how we incorporate these new biomedical advances into our overall strategy. A sort of HIV prevention for the 21st century. So what, what do you think works and doesn't work from the last, last odd years? I think outreach uh was probably the first thing that we did, outreach to the um, high-risk communities, if you will. We started off doing outreach to in the Tenderloin in San Francisco in about five different areas, uh, mostly African-American and Latino, people of color areas. Um, started on foot doing mm. work. I don't necessarily think it's the same kind of outreach, But now we have mobile units where we go to areas where high-risk people are. And I absolutely think the mobile units going to where the people are, especially with the homeless situation as it is in the Bay Area. So I think 
you know, outreach and mobile outreach, uh, taking, going to where people are. I think that works. I think of that as the the hard work. Mm-hmm. You know, you you really have to put the effort in there. Um, one of the things that that has emerged in the last decade or so has been pre-exposure prophylaxis, or PrEP, as we call it, the right. little blue pill. Right. Not to be confused with the other little blue pill. And um, that's certainly made inroads in communities, say, in Southeast Asia, here in the Bay Area, in San Francisco. How does something like PrEP fit into the overall prevention strategy, do you think? I think it's a tool. I think it's a, a good tool. I think condoms is still very important, but I think PrEP is something that men are comfortable with, some men are comfortable with. I, uh, while I think it's a tool, I think some people misuse it and think that they can just go buck wild and do anything that they want to. And unfortunately, people are still getting infected. So while I know it's a tool for people to use, it's not the end of end. And I, I, I fearful that I, I'm fearful that some men and women, but mostly men will think that because I have prep, I can do anything I want to do. I mean, one of the things that excites me about PrEP mm-hmm. and m- makes me think it's part of the 21st century prevention bag is that, you know, you're right. It's not something that stands on its own. It's not something that you are able to take and then are completely disconnected from uh, your care or your prevention providers. It's part of routine testing. And, and of course, the, the, the PrEP will, um, in large part, uh, ensure prevention against HIV, but it doesn't address, you know, some of the other sexually transmitted diseases that we've been speaking about. So it's it's sort of an important entry point to the kind of uh, hard slog services that you've been providing. And, and I think as long as we think about it that way, then I think it's very exciting. I really am happy that we have options, you know, and I want people to keep their minds open and know that it's a tool to use. But if you don't use it right, it's like birth control. If you don't take all your pills every day, you know, you're going to probably get pregnant. So we don't want people getting sick by misusing it. And my fear is what's going to happen after 10, 20 years taking this little blue pill? Uh, but it's a necessary tool, and I think it's going to take us through the 20th century. We're in the 21st century. 21st century. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the other things about prevention is the the use of HIV diagnostics. And there was always um, a philosophical fight in my mind um, where funders were looking at the provision of HIV testing and seeing how many tests you were doing. But they said, oh, well, you've only, you know, you've only found five positives out of 200 or 300 tests. Um, and it always struck me then as peculiar that we were looking at HIV testing as an entry point into a treatment rather than part of a prevention strategy. And I'd be really interested to know how, you know, a group like CalPEP has taken some of the newer um, rapid tests, what we call point of care tests, where it's either a swab or a finger prick and you get a, a fairly accurate result. Um, and if you test positive, you're referred to a laboratory for, you know, you have a, the more in-depth testing. But the way in which perhaps point of care tests can be used to help further 
uh, build a 21st century prevention program? I think the rapid test is wonderful for the population that we deal with. Um, I'm an old school person. When HIV tests first came out, it took seven days before you got your uh, your uh, diagnosis. It was seven days. And sometimes we couldn't find people. People go in and out of jail. People go in and out of treatment. People go in and out of the Bay Area. So it was very difficult finding people. And half the job of the outreach workers was to make sure we found people. So with the rapid testing, I think it's wonderful. You know, right then, you do the test, you do the secondary test right then to make sure that the test is positive. Unfortunately, early on, there was false positives that were given to people. And I thought that was absolutely awful, especially if you were a person that you got a false positive and then we couldn't find you. Uh, and so you walked around thinking that you were positive and or even a false negative, which was awful. So the rapid testing, I think, is wonderful. I don't like the home testing. I think that there's not enough education and um and counseling. Um, when the counselors um, are trained to do HIV testing and counseling, if you do the test at home, you don't get the counseling. So I really worry about people because AIDS is not a death sentence. It used to be when people were positive, they thought they were just going to die. Yeah. It's not that way anymore. But education and prevention still has to be a part of whatever we do. So listen to us being very positive and very enthusiastic. So why have we not collectively moved the needle? Why have HIV infections remained globally stubbornly at the same level? I mean, okay, there are there are great success stories happening across the bay in San Francisco, in London, and in other places. But across the board, you know, the massive investments that have happened in, in the AIDS response in HIV over the last 20 years have not given us results. So what's got to be different this time? Well, I think that we have moved in in a way. I think that people are definitely not dying as much as they used to die. Uh, we are not going to as many funerals as we used to go to. I think that education really has to be focused and targeted. I don't think it can be the way that we started educating people back in, you know, 30 years ago, which was educating them the way that we would educate white gay men. I think you have to target communities, make sure that you're talking to them, using peers, using um, people that that look like them and sound like them to educate them. I think we have a long ways to go. And I think some people really don't believe it. You know, early on days, what I used to tell people, do I need to take you, put you in the car, take you up to Ward 86 and show you people? And for you to understand this could be you, because they would say, I don't know anybody look like that. You know, I'm not, I don't have AIDS. And it's like, I don't need to show you. I need for you to understand and I need to educate you about it. And it took a while for people to even start using condoms, you know, and thinking that they have to use condoms. But the more they did it, the more they understood. And then telling people stories, real, true stories. So we still have a long ways to go because we got to educate people. We got to know this is you. What they want to do is point the finger and say, it's not me. You're talking about that other guy. Or even with sex workers, I've heard them say, I'm not gay. I'm not worried about getting HIV. And it's like, I mean, 
<laughs> 35 years into the epidemic, you should never hear that. Gloria Lockett, thank you for being on A Shot in the Arm. Well, thank you for being a shot in the arm. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we should really be excited about new developments in science, in medicines, in blood tests and vaccines, and then how we get people to access them. But none of this is possible unless we are certain that everybody everywhere can expect and rely on a basic level of health services. But in many parts of the world, that is not a reality. And not only that, there are many countries that are beginning to slip back. A bigger example one could not find but Venezuela. Now, 20 years ago, Venezuela was one of the world's most rapidly expanding economies. It was fueled largely by vast supplies of oil and gas, and its health facilities, its health services, were considered some of the best in the entire world and certainly a source of pride for South America. And yet today, inflation runs at over 10 million percent. The country is in the midst of a huge political crisis. On the one hand, Former President Nicolas Maduro refused to step down at the end of the year, and he is in a terrifying showdown with Juan Guido, the head of the National Assembly, who is now the interim uh, legal president. And according to the Red Cross, healthcare has almost completely collapsed. There are virtually no drugs, no surgical supplies, no diagnostics, no vaccines, let alone food and power. As has often been the case, activists come to the rescue and find ways of bringing medicines to people in need. But even that came to a head in February when police forces loyal to Maduro raided the AIDS organization Fundacion Mavid. They confiscated millions of HIV treatment pills and infant formula. And as of today, those medicines have not been released. They also arrested Fundacion staff. Thankfully, they were released later. So to understand what's going on, I'm joined by Marianne Torres, a Venezuelan human rights lawyer who's the head of ICASO, the International Council of Aid Service Organizations. She's based in Toronto and has been monitoring the situation. Marianne, welcome to A Shot in the Arm. Before we get into Venezuela, just give us a sense of how you feel the AIDS response is doing. Well, I think that the first thing is that you know, 2020 is next year, and we had a lot of hope for 2020 to bring us very close to the end of eight, which is supposed to be 2030, right, with the SDGs, with the Sustainable Development Goals. And I think that we are very far from that. You know, and if I use Venezuela, for example, you, you said, you know, like 20 years ago, Venezuela had, if not the best, one of the best national aid program and health system in the region. And, you know, we were the first or the second country that recognized universal access before universal access was, you know, one of those phrases that we all now use. Yeah. Um, you know, guaranteed by the Supreme Court first in a case that I had the privilege to work on and then by the Constitution. So anything you know, is the the gains are so fragile that anything can take us back years and years. You know, Venezuela is now probably thirty years behind five years ago. Mm. Both, you know, in health in general, 
in development even more general, but but on HIV. And I, and I'll tell you one example. We have been collecting data around death, you know, HIV-related death in one state. And the numbers that we are seeing, so one state have in 2018 had more, so we had more HIV-related death in one state in one year than we had in the entire country the previous year. And this is one state where, where, where our partner was able to collect death certificates. So if that, if that's true, because it's true because we had the death certificate, you know, we can only imagine the rest of the country where we are. And I think that that's a, a very, you know, a very specific example of something going very wrong, very rapidly and, and taking us back to where, you know, people were dying of HIV. In, in a country like Venezuela by the tens per day. And that's what is happening now. What do we need to do to support the people of Venezuela? Well, I think that the first thing is understand that this is about, you know, a criminal dictatorship, human rights violator using food and health as a, as a weapon. And you see it more and more in the last few weeks, people speaking out about you know, being forced to march in favor of Maduro or yes. being forced to be present because they need to get a box with food. Yeah. So it's, it's not about, it's not anymore about, you know, the U.S. trying to, you know, do a military coup in Venezuela. This is a global effort. You know, most of the democracies around the world are in favor of, uh, ending what is happening in Venezuela and, you know, Venezuelans have, you know, people in Venezuela and Venezuelans outside have uh, make it very clear that a transition, a democratic transition that is based on the constitution um, is what, what we want. You've been at the forefront of trying to get the world's attention, particularly on the HIV, TB, and malaria crisis that has been caused by this. Uh, what are the steps that have been made to try and keep people who are living with HIV on treatment? And, and how successful have we been? Um, well, there have been uh, a few things that we have led or jointly done. One has been seeking donation from the private sector and taking ARVs to Venezuela, both officially and not so officially. And that, I think, worked until the end of last year, where there was an agreement with the National AIDS Program and the UN to facilitate that. So we will find the medication outside Venezuela, take it to Panama, and then from there, take it to Venezuela, and it will go into the National Aid Program distribution system. But that that is not working now. And how many how many people do you think this process was treating and keeping alive? You know, that's also difficult because we don't know for certain how many people living with HIV are in the country. One because 
you know, the government hasn't done any database update in the last, I don't know how many years, one. There hasn't been any testing campaign done in probably five to eight years, too. We don't know how many people have died or have left. So the numbers vary depending on who you ask. So it's from, you know, 60,000 to 120 to 300,000. And it depends. It depends who you ask. And, you know, there hasn't been anything done regarding collecting that data. One of the things that has been really impressive about ICASO is its resilience. And I, and I think this is, is primarily coming from you. ICASO's resilience in walking the halls of the UN, making them keep their promises, relentlessly pressuring them to involve civil society. How have you done that? And, and, and frankly, how have you kept sane while doing it? I think this is a question of principle. You know, we, we as, as ICASO, as an organization, and me as a human rights activist or advocate or lawyer, you know, like you are based on principle. And, and for ICASO, you know, the principle of meaningful involvement is perhaps the most important one. And it's not, it is not an, an empty principle for all the involvement of people living with HIV, but, but the real involvement is key. And, and we strive to do it by, by example. And, and if we, and also, you know, like if we are organizing a panel in some conference, you know, we are always going to be pushing for people with lived experience to be part of that panel. And the same in a role in the different committees that we sit, you know, we are always pushing for people with lived experience to be part of, of those spaces. And, and it's with key population and it's, you know, with, with, uh, people in with HIV and it's also around, you know, uh, gender balance and language balance and, you know, like, is, is that meaningful involvement of anybody that can contribute from a live experience? That for me is quite important. And, and you can and hear Huxley in the background violently yeah. <laughs> agreeing with you as a skateboarder goes past. Oh, Good. the joys of recording. Good. So, Marianne, thank you so much. I hope you'll keep us posted on developments in Venezuela. You're welcome anytime on A Shot in the Arm to call us to action. So, thank Perfect. you so thank much. Thank you. Thank you. We are, we are, we are uh, developing two new reports. Uh, one on is an update of our triple threat report that we did last year, looking at from May to March what has happened in Venezuela. And the other one is, is looking at, is documenting our journey from that resulted on the global fund accepting or, or deciding to uh, support Venezuela. They will be posted on our website, which is www.icastle.org. And, you know, we welcome comments and questions. Super. Well, as I said, keep us posted. (laughs) 
We have deliberately focused on HIV in our first episode as an epitome of the new threats that nature has in store for us. The hubris that comes when we overplay our first significant victories against these new threats and the recognition that success is a long, exhaustive struggle that can't be neatly packaged into a tweet or a press release. I'm really excited about 21st century prevention for HIV and other health challenges. It's about discovering a whole new horizon of medications. But it's also about doing what we always do when we are at our best. Helping each other up, building community, and fostering individual rights and collective responsibilities. Now, there's nothing technologically amazing about any of this, but it is awe-inspiring. Well, that's a wrap for today. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the crisis in Venezuela, HIV testing, PrEP or pre-exposure prophylaxis, and HIV treatment, visit our website, ashotinthearmpodcast.com, for a list of useful links and resources. Our thanks to Gloria and Marianne. Thanks also to Jacob Phillips, our intern. Eric Espera, our editor and producer. If you've enjoyed this show, be sure to like and subscribe for new episodes. Follow us at a shot in the arm podcast.com, at Shot Arm Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. And you can read my blogs at hunavatglobal.com slash blog.